You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Humanize Me. I'm Bart Campolo, the host of this podcast and uh, the humanist chaplain at the University of Cincinnati. That's right. I mean, I, I know I used to be the humanist chaplain at the University of Southern California, but that was when I was living with it in L.A. And and after three years in L.A. of wonderful, great stuff, we had a great time. But like my wife, Marty, looked at me and said, I want to go home. I want to be where our old friends are. And so we packed it up and we drove back to Cincinnati and, and here we are. And, you know, there's... At USC, there was a dean of religious life and an office of religious life, and you had to like go through a process to be kind of become an official religious director there. Um, UC is a public university; they got nothing like that. Um, and so, you know, I, I looked around for somebody to to anoint me or officialize me or or appoint me, and and there was nobody around. So eventually, I just went to Kinko's and printed up some cards that say "Humanist Chaplain." at the University of Cincinnati. And so uh, until somebody comes and tells me differently, that's what I am. And I'm reaching out to students and we're building a student community just like we did at USC. And it's going to be wonderful. I'm, I'm really excited. I mean, I don't know it's going to be wonderful, but I'm excited about it. I think it's going to work. Um, the weird thing is what's, what's been really amazing since we got back is that lots of people that listen to this podcast who live in Cincinnati have reached out to me and said, hey, like, could we start a community for people who aren't college students who just want to pursue goodness in a secular way um, together? And so in a couple of days, we're going to have our first community dinner for people around Cincinnati that want to kind of see what that's what what fellowship, secular fellowship would look like. And uh, I mean, there's other great stuff happening in Cincinnati. You know, I've met some people who are part of the Tri-State Free Thinkers Group here. It's one of the biggest, most active atheist organizations in the country. Um, but the people that are reaching out for, to me and that I've been talking to, a lot of them are post-Christians. They're like church people. And, uh, and when they go to the atheist thing, they're like, it's fine, but we kind of miss the warm, you know, inspirational stuff singing and you know that kind of you know jello salads and things that and so yeah so i guess like they, they you know we're kind of going to try to do something that has a little bit of that kind of vibe that's about loving relationships that's about reaching out to people and trying to transform their lives not with kind of spiritual mumbo jumbo or or or, or, or supernatural promises but just with with the warmth that comes from kind of an intentional tribe a bunch of people saying like hey let's i'll take care of you you take care of me let's let's look out for each other let's be interested in each other and then reach out to other people and say listen we're doing really good here if you entered into this you know you could be part of this community and so i talk about this stuff all the time on the podcast and uh the interesting thing is you know i did it on that college campus but most of the people that listen to the podcast the people that you know, call me for kind of coaching on this community building stuff. They're just doing it in a ta- in a small town or you know among their friends, and uh, 
And I think sometimes they're like, you know, it's a lot easier to do on a college campus. And you know what? I think they're right. And so I'm kind of excited to be like doing what I'm asking everybody else to do to start that book group, to start that little, you know, kind of club or, or that, that kind of, you know, dinner party thing that in, in order to bring people together to pursue goodness in, in a secular way together. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of at the front end myself. So, uh, you know, it, it, I, all my brilliant ideas and consulting and like, oh, it should totally be this way. And oh, you should never do it that way. And these people are making a huge mistake. Like, I'm probably going to get my hat handed to me. I'm probably going to learn that it's not as easy as I've been making it sound. But maybe it is. We'll see. Anyway, I'll keep you posted. But in the meantime, yeah, Marty and I are still looking for a house. We're still staying in our friend's attic. It's getting cold here. Like our bedroom is about 50 degrees at night. We're under like four comforters, staying fully dressed. Um, and uh, But it's not that bad because they're really lovely people and we'll find a house, right? Right? I mean, we'll find a house. Um, but you know, all of that getting stuff started and connecting with people, I, I don't want to make excuses, but... I feel really bad about not having put out very many podcasts, especially we started this Patreon thing. People have come on and they've sponsored the, the, the podcast for a dollar a month or $5 a month. I mean, actually, we even had somebody come on and sponsor it for $50 a month. That's right. And you want to know who it was? I'll tell you. It was Rob Bronson and his wife, Barb, and they live in Calgary, Canada. That's right. It was Canadians. All you American listeners, I hope you're... I hope you're properly humbled by the fact that a Canadian came to the plate. Um, and I actually talked to Rob and on the phone um, a couple of days ago. You know, because I, one of the things I promised is like, if you sponsor at that level, I'm going to give you a call and talk to you and find out the story. And man, what a wonderful person. What a lovely, yeah, and again, like a post-Christian, somebody who was in that whole church thing and then the whole narrative fell apart, but is still excited about growing and excited about life and excited about loving other people and excited about learning more about how things really work and uh gosh it was just a joy to talk to him and and uh so anyway but you know all these people are sponsoring the podcast and I'm not putting out episodes and part of that is like it's been crazy around here trying to get you know, I don't have all my stuff and we're all the stuff's in a pod and we're living out of a suitcase and it's, it's, it's crazy that way. But you know, the other thing is I did record a couple of episodes. I had a wonderful interview and, uh, it turns out that I did not have the microphone on my end switched on. And so it looked like it was recording, but when I sent it off to John to produce the show, it was gone. And I did two episodes that way. And so I, like, all I can say is I'm really sorry. I think I've got it all figured out. I think we'll be back to, like, the regular weekly episodes from now on. But it has not been easy um, pulling all this stuff together. So, yeah, what can I say? Like, to the degree that, that, that the humanized me... You know, listenership is kind of a community, and it is. I mean, people email, we, we correspond, people are connecting with each other through the Facebook page. Um, you know, I've kind of let everybody down, and I feel bad about that. Um, so, But I'm not going to dwell on that, okay? I'm not going to dwell on that. 
Instead, I'm going to tell you a story. And, and, and that's going to be the whole podcast this time. This is kind of a, a, a get back up on the horse podcast. And I'm just going to tell you a story because last week I went to a storytelling workshop. Um, and I went because I'm convinced that storytelling is, you know, like the kind of stuff that you hear on The Moth or the kind of stuff I talked about with Mark Iaconelli last year. I'm convinced that storytelling is one of the most powerful meaning-making tools that we have and, and, and also one of the most listening and talk, sharing our stories with each other is, is so basic to our human experience, so basic to tribe building that I think that storytelling is one of the things that will really help us to build the kind of communities that, that I think people need. So I, I went to the storytelling workshop not because, I mean, to be honest with you, I've been telling stories for years. Like, I, like on some level as an evangelical preacher, I was a professional storyteller. Um, so I, I think I know how to tell a story, but I wanted to learn how to teach it. And so I went to this workshop. It was run by um, my friends uh, at, at, at an organization called Bespoken Live. And, uh, and, and they run storytelling events at, here in Cincinnati. And I'm kind of I'm kind of trying to get in their orbit, orbit. but I, I went because I wanted to see how they teach it because they run, they, they teach people to tell stories, sometimes for corporate reasons or, you know, writers that are working on stuff, they workshop things together. And so I went to the workshop and uh, it was amazing because, you know, in, in order to be in the workshop, you had to come with like a little story in mind and then you were going to spend the day polishing it up. And so I did that. I brought a story, and actually what I did was I brought a story that I used to tell when I was an evangelist, a Christian evangelist. And it was a true story, something that happened to me when I was a, a new Christian. And, and I guess I was trying to figure out, like, is there, is, is this, does this story have any use now to me? Um, is there any way to sort of repurpose it? And... At the beginning of the workshop, they took us through this guided meditation, um, which, of course, I was totally into because if you follow the podcast, you know I've, I've kind of gotten into meditation um, just recently um, after my conversation with Jennifer Howd. And, and sure enough, this meditation that he took us through uh, – actually, it wasn't it – wasn't, he didn't take us through it. The guy, running, the guy who runs Bespoken didn't do it one of the women that he works with, one of his colleagues did, and she she took us through this meditation that they've worked up. And after about five minutes, I was I felt like I was in touch with a side of this story that I would was surprised by. And you know what? I'm actually gonna see if I can't get that storytelling meditation and do it like get 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 her to do it on the podcast because I think like if if you listen to it I think you'll find it to be amazing, um, amazingly helpful, um, in in thinking through your own life. But anyway, by the end of it, I had this story in mind, and for the rest of the day we workshopped it. And I don't know if I you know I don't know if Joseph Campbell would approve. Um, I don't know if it's the hero's journey. I don't know. All I know is that when I was done, I thought maybe this works. But the weird thing is, of course, I no longer get invited to speak very much. And so I, like, I had this story worked up and I had no one to tell it to. And then I thought, wait, I'll tell it to you guys. 
I'll tell it to the podcast. And so I'm going to tell you the story. And it starts now. And actually, this I mean, the story takes place when I was a young guy. I was a, I was a new Christian. Um, and one of the first things I got asked to do as a new Christian was to run a summer camp in this low-cost housing project in Philadelphia called Bartram Village. And Bartram Village was a really tough place. I mean, I'm sure it's a tough place now. It, this, was, this was in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. It was a really rough spot. And uh, so I was part of a team and we, we had a little, we had an apartment just outside the, the, the project that, we, that they rented for us. And, and every day we would go in to run summer camp. And the first day, I, I was kind of the leader of this gang, um, even though I was like, like 18 years old. And the first day of summer camp, we drive in. We drive in and we unload our stuff out of the van and we get set up in the, in the back of the tenant council, which was who was sponsoring us to be there. And we set up all the stuff. And, 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 and they had put out flyers for weeks. And, and sure enough, like 50, 60 kids showed up for summer camp. And, uh, and they were all sort of sitting there and I got up and said, okay, kids, grab a seat. We're going to start summer camp. And I started to explain to them what summer camp was going to be all about. Like we're going to sing songs and we're going to play games and do arts and crafts and we're going to learn about Jesus and it's going to be great. And, and as I'm doing this thing, these kids, they just sat, they were sort of into it. Like kids are an easy audience in this sort of thing, especially when they don't yet know you very well. And they gave me their attention. But as I'm doing my shtick, on the back fence, some teenagers started to gather and they were not as impressed with me. And they started, like, like they were some big rough looking guys from the neighborhood and they started yelling stuff, making fun of me, talking about what they were going to do to us after, if they, if they caught us after camp was over. And, uh, and it was, it was, it was scary. And we, I just kept plowing ahead and we got the kids into groups and we started the summer camp and we fed them lunch and we sent them on their way. And when it was over, I said to the people I was working with, the, the, other, the other missionaries, I said, look, let's pack this thing up quickly and get out of here before there's any trouble. And so we're packing things into the van and we're getting ready to leave. And I feel a hand come down on my shoulder and I turn around and it's this big teenage kid, big teenager. And I, I turn around and he says, yo, man. You're not from around here, are you? I remember thinking to myself, like, how'd you know? Um, like, how could you tell? Um, he said, man, he said, I saw what you were doing there with those kids. And he said, it seems like you're a good guy, but like, you're not going to last very long in this neighborhood with that song and dance. He said, but I think you're trying to do something positive here. He said, how about if I show you around a little bit? Now, listen, I'm not the, at 18, I was not the smartest, most, you know, you know, like thoughtful guy in the world, but I was smart enough to know that this kid was offering me a lifeline. And I said, man, that would be great. That would be great. And for the next two weeks, every day after summer camp, the Jamon would sort of take me, that was his name. His name was Jamon. And Jamon would take me and he would walk me around the neighborhood and he would say, man, you can walk down this street. Don't walk down that street. He said, you can talk to those people. Don't even look that guy in the eye. 
He said, some of the words you use, some of the, some, of the, some of the way you're talking, he said, you're trying to sound like you're all hip, but everybody knows you're not street wise. So just be yourself, man. He said, don't try to talk that way. Just be yourself. And he took me around. He introduced me to people. And like, like and don't get me wrong. I'm not, you know, like it isn't like, and in two weeks, I became like a streetwise, hip, urban, down dude who like knew all the, no, man. I, I mean, I, I've been working in inner cities for most of my life. I'm still not that guy, but I'm alive. I know how to get around. I've been working in these neighborhoods all my life and and I'm pretty good at interacting with people. And if I'm good at all, it's because of the stuff that I, it it all started with the stuff I learned from Jamon. I mean, that was the amazing thing, but you know, he really taught me how to survive that first summer. And of course, all the time he's talking to me about that stuff, I'm telling him about Jesus because I was a Christian missionary and that's what I was supposed to do. And so like I was preaching Jesus to him all the time and we became really good friends. By the end of that summer, I was still alive and Jamon was a Christian. He accepted Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. And of course, when I used to, you know, tell that story in church, when I would get to that point, I would say, and Jamon was a Christian, the crowd would cheer and they would, oh, you won him to Jesus. And it was a great thing. And the thing is like, Jamon was just a great kid. Like he was a charismatic just a, just a just smart, charismatic, funny. And like, so he was always around the summer camp. He was helping with the littler kids. And I just liked him. And, uh, and our friendship was genuine. Like, you know, and towards the end of the summer one day, I was back at the apartment, at, you know, in the afternoon, getting some stuff ready and everything. And, and a knock came at the door. And I go to open the door and it's Jamone. And I said, man, what's up? And he said, yo, man, my mom threw me out of the house. So I got to come and live with you now. I got nowhere to go. I got to live with you. And the funny thing, like I didn't panic. Like, like that didn't phase me. Because the truth is, is that kids from the neighborhood were always coming to our place telling us that they had no place to live and that they needed to move in with us. Because of course our apartment was, it was clean. And there was a lot of food in the refrigerator. And there were eight nice young fresh-faced college kids who would wanted to like give you attention and play with you and 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 read you stories as as long as you wanted to i mean of course it was like shangri-la for kids and many of these kids were growing up in really chaotic situations in really hard places and so they would always come and say like yeah i got thrown out and you know I, i by that time i had sort of figured out like i didn't even argue with them i just said oh okay I said, listen, I'll tell you what, let's go back and talk to your mom. And if your mom says she threw you out, then we'll figure out where you're going to stay. And, you know, they would always go, okay. And then like halfway back to the neighborhood, they would go like, well, maybe she threw me out to go get a quart of milk. You know, like there was always a story. It was never really, they didn't have a place to go. And so when Jamon said that, I was like, all right, dude, let's go talk to your mom. And if she says, she says you're out, we'll figure out what to do next. He said, fine. And we walked back into the neighborhood and he did not say another word. We just walked there. And I, I knew where he lived. We walked right to the apartment, walked up to the second floor. I, I, I heard the music behind the door. I bang on the door. And uh, his mom opened the door. And I had met her a few times. She opened the door and she looked at him 
with contempt. Like she looked at him with like just hatred in her eyes. And then she looked at me and she said, hey, you get that piece of shit out of here and you never bring it back. I don't ever want to see that, that piece of garbage again. And she slammed the door. So then we walked down the stairs and out and out onto the courtyard. I said, Jamon, by this, I mean, by this time he's crying. I said, Jamon, what is happening here? He said, man, she threw me out. I said, no, I know she threw me out. I said, why? What did you do? And he said, man, she threw me out because I wouldn't beat down the kid who lives next door. She told me I had to beat that kid down or I couldn't stay there anymore. And I said, I, 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 said I couldn't beat down the kid who lives next door because Bart said that Jesus said that we got to love our enemies. So, of course, like, then it's my fault. And, uh, you know, I said, I, said, I said, wait a second. Why does your mom want you to beat down the kid who lives next door? And he said, man, because that kid keeps raping my little brother. And I was like, oh, no. Because I knew Jamon's little brother. He was in our summer camp. He was much younger. He was like eight or nine years old. His name was Artis. And uh, and he was basically catatonic, like the kid never said a mumbling word. And I, you know, I didn't know what it was at the time. I just thought, you know, he was he there was there was something wrong with him. I, but 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 all of a sudden it dawned on me the kid's kind of catatonic. Like I remember the kid's shell shock. Like the kid's been he's been being abused on a regular basis. I said, wait a second. This guy's raping your brother. I said, we got to call the police, man. We got to call the cops. And Jamon laughed at me in a really bitter way. And he said, man, shut up. You know better than that. You, you, you've been in this neighborhood long enough to know better than that. And I had too. Because the police didn't come through that neighborhood very often. They came through twice, twice a day. They would, Scott, squad car would come through and it wouldn't really stop. You know? I mean, I mean, the criminal justice system didn't work very well in that neighborhood, to say the least. I mean, it turned out later on that the kid, the kid that was that was hurting Jamon's brother, that kid was already in the juvenile justice system. He was in some kind of diversion program, and he would get out on weekends and come home for week with on weekends, and that was when he hurt Jamon's little brother. And I, I he he said, "Man, tell me what to do." He said, "He said I'll do whatever you say." You know, because by that time, I'm like his older brother figure. I'm like the, uh, the spiritual guy. He says, tell me what to do and I'll do it, man. And, and I hesitated, you know. I mean, I knew what I was supposed to say. I mean, all that summer, I'd been preaching nonviolence to kids. I'd been preaching that, like, you know, violence only begets more violence and, and, and that there are, not, there are better ways to handle conflict and everything. And, I mean, I believed that. I mean, I still believe that now. I mean, I'm not a pacifist or anything, but I, but I, I, I know that in most cases, especially in, in, in ghettos, violence does just beget more violence. And... And in this case, I knew that like if Jamon went out there and did violence to this kid, there was a very real chance he would get hurt, that there was a very real chance that he would get arrested or something bad would happen. I mean, lots of bad stuff happened in that neighborhood. I mean, I could practically hear my youth pastor whispering in my ear while I was standing there, you know. Trust the Lord. You know, that's what we used to say. Trust the Lord. 
With God, all things are possible, you know? Ask and ye shall receive. You know, I mean, I just felt my youth pastor saying, man, pray about this. Get it down on your knees and put it before the Lord. God will show you a way. There, there's always a way. And I'm hearing that voice and I'm looking at Jamon and I'm looking around me, knowing where I am. And I didn't listen to that voice. I mean, this was early in my Christian journey, but I didn't listen and I didn't pray. I looked at Jamon and I said, you go find that kid. I said, you go find that kid, Jamon. And take as many people as you need to with you. You go find him and you hurt him. You hurt him real bad. You hurt him so bad that he never even thinks about coming around your way again. Yeah, I sent him out to hurt that kid. And then I went back to my nice clean apartment with the food in the refrigerator. And I got down on my knees and I asked God to forgive me because I knew what I had done was wrong, wrong by that standard. I asked God to forgive me. But even in the middle of asking God to forgive me, I found myself thinking I wasn't so sure that it wasn't me that needed to forgive God for making a world where that stuff happened. I mean, I remember I just felt dirty. The whole experience just made me feel like I knew stuff I didn't want to know, that I was involved in things I didn't want to be involved that were way over my head. I mean, I always thought that life was about choosing between right and wrong. In this situation, man, it just felt like I, the only choices were bad and worse. And I, I, I didn't leave. I mean, I was, I was a kid and I stayed a Christian for like 30 years. So, I mean, it wasn't enough. Even that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to get me to quit, but it was enough to mess me up. And I guess that's why, you know, sometimes people say, you go so easy on Christians. You're, you're so willing to work with Christians. You're so, you're so patient. You know what? First of all, there are a lot of wonderful people out there and they didn't choose to be Christians any more than, than most of us choose not to be Christians. I mean, like people believe what they believe for all sorts of reasons. It's not necessarily a choice. But the other thing is, man, you got to have some compassion because when you are a Christian, you have to try so hard, especially the good ones, especially the ones that go into ghettos or that try to work with people in trouble or that are reaching out. you got to work so hard to make it work to try to make it all, to make, to make things, it seem like it makes sense. I mean, it's painful. I mean, so much of my Christian life, I felt so guilty because I couldn't figure out a way to make it work. And, and I believed that it worked. I mean, the problem was me. That's what I always thought. I mean, that's, that's the thing. I mean, I remember there was this phrase they used to say, if you don't feel close to God, guess who moved? And the idea was that God is always faithful and God is always righteous and he's always there. And so if you feel far away from God, it must be something you're doing wrong. And whenever my Christian faith didn't work, whenever I didn't have the answer, whenever the world didn't make sense to me, I always thought that the problem was me. So, man, you got to have some compassion, my friends. You got to have some compassion 
for people, even when they're being harsh, even when they're telling you that you're going to hell, even when they're they're putting down their crazy stuff, like what I'm telling you is, is no matter how certain or, 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 or they seem on the outside, underneath the surface, they are paddling furiously to stay afloat. They are working really hard to make it work because it is hard to make it work in the real world because the real world is chaos and the idea that there is some benevolent presence behind it pulling all the strings in a way that makes any sense is absurd i don't know what the i don't know what the point of that story is except maybe to say that like even even way back then the seeds were already planted for what would become my secular transition my humanism and i know and, and boy but i'll tell you what when you saw me preaching in those in, in the time in between then and now you wouldn't have known it and if you would have asked me i wouldn't have known it. and if you would have put me on a lie detector test i would have passed with flying colors god was real to me and yet the you, you know and yet in that moment i didn't pray and i didn't tell jamon to be nonviolent. I sent him out to do violence and I felt like it was wrong, but I did it. Like I was already compromised. And so, yeah, be compassionate and don't give up hope. Some of you, some of you have people in your lives that, that you, you, you feel like you're never going to be able to connect with them. You're, they're never going to understand you and you're never going to find a way to them. And I guess what I'm telling you is like, don't give up hope because like if somebody would have known me back then, they would have said, that Bart, he'll never see reason. But it was a matter of time. All right, that's my story. I don't know if it's worth anything. In fact, you know what? You could send me an email. You could go to bartcampola.org. And you could let me know what you thought, whether that story has any value to you. Um, I'm curious. Um, and I'm curious if there are stories from your past um, where you saw, like you might say, like the kind of person I am now, I, I wasn't living that way, but there were, if there were moments of inklings, I guess you would call them inklings, um, cracks in the, in the architecture, um, that maybe, that maybe you, 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 you know, that, I mean, that was, that was the value of the storytelling workshop for me was I looked back and I was like, oh my gosh, in the story that I used to tell us a triumph of Christian love, it, it was already there. All right, I'm done. That's it. Yeah, I'd love to hear from you. Go to bartcampola.org. If you're interested in the whole coaching and counseling stuff that we always talk about, it's there. If you want to know about the new chaplaincy, it's there. It's all going to be there. And, uh, and I'm going to be here. Next week, I promise, on Humanize Me. Thanks for being part of it. For more information about the work of Bart Campolo, please visit bartcampolo.org. <laughs>